welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thank you for joining me for the podcast. I have Joel Brown and Alex Ditto. And our climate today, our topic today is climate change. Um, is it a problem? And what kind of attitude should the common everyday person have about it? So, first of all, just to kind of introduce you guys, um, Alex, maybe just starting with you, um, could you introduce yourself and just tell a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and that type of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm Alex Dido. Um, uh, my background really comes from, uh, from, philosophy, from philosophy and theology. Um, so my undergrad work was in religion. I, uh, went to Missouri Baptist university and, and studied there. Um, and then I went on to do, um, a master's degree in, um, uh, theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, uh, and then I followed that up because, um, I figured I wasn't going to make any money off of a, a master's degree in philosophy or theology. So I got one in philosophy after that to ensure that I wouldn't make any money. Um, just ensure the highest levels of poverty possible. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the point of education. Um, so I got my master's degree in philosophy after that. Um, I kind of middled around with that a little bit and then, um, ended up, uh, finding my way into software development, which is where I am now. So, um, professionally I'm a software developer, um, classically trained, I guess, as a philosopher, as well as any philosopher should be trained or could be trained. Um, a lot of my interest in things like, um, climate change, oftentimes comes down to policy and then kind of philosophy and how people engage with existential crises or just um, the empirical world around them. Like, how do we understand and just basic empirics, um, empiricism. Um, so that's going to be um, kind of the framing that I come into a lot of these questions with. Um, as far as larger scale things, um, as a Christian, I think that there's um, some unique perspectives that Christians have on climate change, both from whether or not they're younger theory or older theory and kind of creationism down to um, whether they fall on the left or right uh, side of political divides um, inside the church. Um, and then on the larger scale, politically, how you fall on those political divides um, can all impact the way that somebody engages with climate change, engages with information. I find it fascinating. That's usually where, I, where I'm really interested. Um, and so that kind of is what brought me into this debate, even though um, I'm not a scientist, uh, this is all new research to me uh, to get into the fine nuances of it, um, but I'm excited. So it was a it was a fun week or two of pounding books that I I had no clue who the authors were and and really happy to dig through some new information. So you mentioned handling empiricism. Are you talking about like just knowing what's fact and not is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the difficulties that we have um, just in the in science in general, right? Uh, the scientific method. Um, is this idea of how do we understand and engage with empiricism? Um, how do you understand the world around you? The world is basically one cacophony of data in every way. Um, and understanding how to sort that data into patterns, um, understanding when those patterns are, are real and authentic and not just um, the way that the human mind is built to kind of see patterns where they don't really exist. Um, the idea that if you stare into uh, stare into your carpet for long enough, you'll see faces staring back at you. 
Uh, it's because your mind is pre-built to be able to see and recognize faces and recognize those patterns. Uh, whenever we look into uh, into the world around us, into um, scientific data, sometimes we can see those patterns where they don't really exist because we're kind of presupposing that there should be patterns there. Um, in other places, patterns exist, um, and it's something we observe, and then new information, we kind of assume something about them. Um, we try to make a definition of why these patterns exist. Um, a great example is like back during the Aristotelian days, uh, Aristotle and Plato believed in floating planets. Basically, they would look up in the sky and they would see these planets floating around. And they had star charts that were incredibly accurate. They could predict, uh, even back to Thales, could predict a solar, uh, solar eclipse with really good accuracy, really amazing stuff. But they thought that these stars were just floating in and out in these random patterns. Uh, what they didn't have was a geocentric model of the universe where those were planets, they're not stars. Um, so they were seeing patterns, they were making sense of the world, and they had real working worldviews that eventually those patterns had to give away to better empiricism once we had telescopes and we had a better understanding of how certain mathematical principles happen. Um, and then they had to develop new patterns and new ways of understanding that, um, which in some ways are, are matters of science, but kind of underlies that is that philosophy of empiricism. Okay. All right. And my other guest is Joe Brown. And um, Joe Brown, could you introduce yourself and tell about you, yourself and your background and so forth? Absolutely. So I appreciate you having uh, putting this together. Looking forward to the discussion. I think it's a discussion that needs to be had. Um, so I come from a scientific background. Uh, but also Christian, I'll, I'll kind of deal with both of the, both of those aspects. So uh, I grew up in a pastor's home, and it was a good experience in a pastor's home. You hear you get a mixed bag sometimes. Great experience, um, no regrets, and uh, chose to follow Christ at an early age. So that's a big part of my identity. Um, but along the way, I also had a bent towards science, and I love science. Pursued science, uh, got my undergrad in biology education, and from there, continued into the scientific research. Got my master's degree in biology and eventually my PhD in molecular biology and genetics uh, from Cornell University, and really enjoyed all of that. Uh, I still... I think my favorite place to be in the world is still a college campus. And if being a student the rest of my life was an option, I probably would have done that. <laughs> but as uh, Alex hinted at earlier, um, being a student doesn't really pay the bills. So I had to move on to real life. And that real life brought me here to St. Louis. So I came here to do my postdoc at the um, Wash U Medical School. Did that for a year and changed tracks at that point into a more education-focused. So now I'm actually a high school science teacher in um, the Ferguson Florissant School District here locally. But I would say, interesting, it's, it's the, the reason I ended up in this position. It was a very unusual teaching position. I, I'm about 50% teacher, 50% park ranger. So the place I teach is actually a 100-acre forest that's owned by the school district. So it's um, best thought of as a 100-acre outdoor classroom. And the students come there. Uh, I teach field biology, so we study nature. That's, that's all we do. 
Um, we study how nature works. We study, uh, we get the students to experience nature. And uh, I love it. I mean, this was one of those, it was like a dream job when I was like 18, you know, 17, graduating high school. Uh, and then real life happened and you go pursuing the things that you think are uh, more important only to circle back to education. But this is truly a unique teaching position that I'm in where, where it's about half, half uh, management of the property, the, the forest, the prairie, the, and then half teaching. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Well, our first, the first thing we're going to address is, is human caused global warming a serious issue? Um, so who would like to kind of start off just with your, your thoughts on that? Would you like to, Joe? Yeah, I'll jump in just to kind of state, state my position that I'm coming from here. So to directly answer the question, no. But it really depends what you mean by serious issue. And that, I think, is where a lot of the nuance in this discussion is going to come from. Um, I listened to, for instance, that podcast you sent me yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago. By uh, Gavin Ortland, I think. Yes. And I was, I was surprised to hear him say, like, Man, he can't sleep at night because of climate change. He uh, he really uh, spends a lot of time thinking about it and worrying about it. And I do think, and this will be kind of the, the premise, the thesis that I'm working around, I do think we need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I think we need to walk circumspectly as Christians. Meaning, we do have to have an eye on how we could be impacting the environment and we have to have an eye on how we can uh, create an overbearing government through um, concerning worrying too much about the environment. And both of those problems are, are real problems that we have to keep an eye on. So there are two um, positions which I think we have to avoid. Position number one is that the assumption that there is nothing that humans can do to possibly impact our climate. There is this idea out there amongst conservatives that there's, oh, the, the climate, the planet is so big, humans, we have no impact. There's no way we could impact the climate of, of Earth. And I think that's patently false. It's, it's an assumption that's dangerous to think that we could not impact our planet negatively. The other assumption, which I'll call, or the belief, premise, is the alarmist nature. That if we don't do something today, the world as we know it is going to end within 10 years. That philosophy. I'm much more concerned about that latter one, but I keep my eye on both of these. Okay. So, basically, your answer to the question is basically no, and I guess we'll get to the details later of what, why you say no, but one thing, you know, it just popped into my head is like a serious issue um, and worrying about it doesn't necessarily need to equate, like you can um, have a, a you, I mean, you can not worry. You can have a serious issue and not worry about it. Like it's so. It's not like the worrying 
I mean, the worrying about it's a problem, but that doesn't necessarily say whether or not it's a serious issue, I guess. Yeah, like, a, like a child can worry about a monster under their bed, right? Yeah. And it can be a true gripping anxiety. But if there's no monster under their bed, there's no reason to worry. If there is a monster under their bed, then there's existential terrifying reason to worry, right? Not just for him, but for our whole understanding of how monsters work. Um, so, like, basically what you're... If I'm understanding your position, just to clarify, like, you would say almost like a middle path, right? Like, there are people that you see that are um, kind of overly flippant um, with uh, nature and environment and things like that. Like the uh, um, Maybe a lot of the arguments that I've seen with, like, um, we need to continue to pollute even harder because other countries will out-pollute us if we're not uh, if we're not polluting harder and then uh, you know the environment will will solve itself later um, looking at that as kind of like well that's clearly um, to the extreme but then on the other extreme of like um, research that we've seen where it's like young children are worried about you know making it into their 30s or like um, I think it's not there was a survey that was done a peer research study where it was like 60% of young people say that climate change is the most pressing issue of their lifetime. Um, would you say that those things are probably more like hyperbolic and that's that's become kind of a, they've walked too far to an extreme? Absolutely. Okay. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. For instance, um, in my class, we do these kind of impromptu environmental surveys where all the students stand in a circle and then you ask them a question like, blue is my favorite color. And depending on how much they agree with that, that statement they move closer into the circle if they agree a lot if they don't agree at all they stay at the edge and so it's this uh graphical representation of how much they agree on things so one of the questions i always ask is um climate change is the most pressing what's how's the wording go basically it's the greatest problem we have in our world and they're always clumped in the middle always clumped in the middle and and i think that's representative of the the mindset that they're being fed that if if we don't solve this thing you guys won't have any place to live in the next 50 years and uh i would my my approach is well yeah we are going to solve it and that's what humans do we solve problems Hmm. okay i'm getting to the end of the discussion though oh that's okay So that's so you that's kind of so you see it as a, a serious issue perhaps, but that it's we have it under under control or something along closer to, to those lines. Is that kind of what you're thinking? sure? And we should unpack that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I think uh, in response to that, let me let me kind of lay out um, my approach and positions to this. Um, so whenever I'm looking at something like climate change, um, there's a lot of the research that I've done to, to see like, okay, what levels of severities are we looking at? Um, and I, I try to compare that against what I consider to be my first principles for, uh, for society, for community. Um, and with something like the issue with global climate change is that it's global. So it's, we're looking at the largest community that we've ever kind of um, capitulated on the earth, right? It's not just... Um, it's not just my church, it's not just my local community, it's not just my state, it's not just my country, it's the entirety of the globe that has some type of impact in relation into this. Um, so it's a huge community. So um, with that, I'm thinking, you know, what are the first principles that we can use, like any other community, to guide that community, right? 
so for example, to bring it local down to the church, right? The first principle that guides the church is uh, an adherence to Christ and, and an emulation of Christ, right? You're not a church if you're not adhering to Christ and you're not being like him, right? Can't be a Christian if you're not like Christ. It's kind of in the name, right? Um, and that's the first principle that guides that community. Um, but that's not the first principle that guides like the state or, um, you know, the United States or something like that. Um, rather seems like their first principles are like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, or these kind of inalienable rights at a world stage. What I would say is I think that we could have kind of three first principles that I lay out or in my mind. Um, the first is that humanity should do everything that it can to mitigate harm or human suffering when possible. Um, I think in that it's very preferenced on when possible, right? doesn't mean that we should eliminate all human suffering, but whenever we know that human suffering is going to occur and we know that there are paths that we can take that will result in less human suffering or mitigate that human suffering, we should endeavor to do that um, whenever possible. I think that's a, a moral obligation. Um, the second is um, to do what we can to produce paths that produce human flourishing. Um, this is something that Aristotle um, called eudaimonia, um, the idea that basically this human flourishing, the ability, the ability to be happy in the sense of to be self-fulfilled, to be able to uh, achieve that which humanity was kind of built causally to achieve. Um, underlying Christian principle there is like to achieve what Christ, uh, what Christ built you to achieve. Um, and then the third principle is basically that um, that we should all have equal access to that community, um, but that those who are most um, proficient in that community have a higher responsibility, and then those who um, are also more proficient in that community have a higher accountability to that community, um, which is where I think, like, this is why I think that the more developed nations that have the access to things that we'll probably talk about at closer to the end, access to new technologies that could solve issues, have a higher requirement to do those investments and and to make kind of those kind of world-leading movements. But in those first two, maybe just in the first principle alone, I think this is where um, climate change becomes what I would consider to be that kind of crossing the Rubicon into a significant event, which is um, to reduce human suffering when possible. Um, and what I've seen in different, um, different modeling and different things is that we, whenever we're looking at climate change, anywhere between like two and five degrees, which five degrees is obviously pretty uh pretty extreme modeling uh, that's kind of the uh we'll just start burning everything and see what happens um but even at the really conservative like the two degrees celsius increase um i think it's by 2050 um or into the century i forget which one that is um we see really significant um human suffering that's going to be resulted of that um assuming two things assuming one that we um uh, that we don't mitigate and we don't kind of prepare for that um we don't make wise decisions um and then to that we um we kind of continue to offset that to um populations that are the least kind of ab uh, have the least ability to um combat that human suffering and so it, it ends up being both kind of an indifference and even an a flourishing of human suffering um and so that's why i would say like i think it's an issue of climate change also in, ends up being like a issue of humanity and an issue of human community uh thus just prioritizing things above that kind of first principle of mitigating human suffering um so that's why i would say like i think the idea of somebody like staying terrified in their bed is, is probably a bad sign right um being sleepless 
is probably a bad sign because of the idea of culpability, right? Um, it's not really your fault that we're in this situation. So unless you're the one guy pumping billions of pounds of uh, carbon into the air, uh, I don't think that you should be up at night necessarily. Um, but it's, I think it's also good that um, as a human, as humanity, as a collective whole, that we do have people who are up late night um, worried about climate change. Uh, in the same way that I want people, I want someone out there to be sleepless at night because of brain cancer. Um, I want somebody out there to be sleepless at night because of um, energy efficient windows. I want somebody out there, I mean, I'm out there sleepless at night because uh, the franchise portal uh, for my website isn't operating in the exact nuanced way that I want, right? Uh, but that's kind of how humanity really flourishes is we have these type of little modules of people that really concern themselves, really care about one thing, devote themselves to that. Um, so those, those instances, if everyone was that way, it'd be a problem. Um, and it might have stepped into that in different areas. But I think the idea that like this is a, a prime thing that people are concerned about, I think that's justifiable in that way. Um, at least that's my position going in. So I think one of the first questions that I would have is just, do we do we kind of agree at the the outset about how a bad or extreme it would be? And then from that, do we understand, like... Um, yeah, basically that first question, like, is the monster real? Um, or rather, is the monster as monstrous as I as we think that it is? Um, so I'll ask that question first. It's like, basically, how bad do you think, like, 2050 is in our current modeling? So before I answer that, I'd like to circle back yeah. to something you said, which um, about our number one goal is to... Uh, mitigate or reduce human suffering where possible. So do you think the banning of DDT um, in order to control mosquitoes was a good or a bad decision? Um, so if I remember correct, um, DDT um, did do a good job of mitigating and killing mosquitoes, but it also had the unintended side effect of making uh, eggshells for um, birds too fragile, so that whenever birds sat on their eggs, it would snap them and basically like decimated a large part of the uh, bird population. Is that is that right? That is no, correct. You? Okay, cool. Um, so this would be an area that it's the the balance of human suffering and understanding like human suffering and ecological suffering are going to be tied in together exactly um so in this way like it was a positive that um that we got rid of insects that were harming the human race right um i but, do think so so that's my point is that we didn't get rid of them yeah we got rid of them in the u.s and then um environmentalists banned it mm -hmm. um so it's no longer it cannot be used in africa either where malaria is killing millions of people and so here we've actually seen the opposite where in due to environmental interests we have put human suffering as on a lower shelf and therein lies the problem well certainly and that would be um that would be against kind of my first principles on that right that we want to um and there it usually is the difficulty of whenever we're looking at these communities why i try to push toward more of a global concept of community because it's very easy to dismiss human suffering whenever it's in not America, right? 
um, this is the problem of Hershey chocolate, right? It's, it's not really child labor because they're in a different country. Like, it's child labor. It's child slavery is what we're engaging with there. Um, and so a situation like this, like, it's very easy to assume that um, we've taken care of a problem um, entirely. And then now that we've taken care of that problem, the secondary effects are worse. And so we're going to prioritize those secondary effects and impose that when it's still really a primary problem somewhere else. Um, in Africa, they're still dealing with malaria. They might still need those. It might still be worth that ecological, uh, uh, ecological impact. What I would say there, though, is that I think that's an issue of, um, one, we still need to prioritize human suffering over ecological suffering. Um, two, that does circle back around, right? Um, the loss of um, bird population is going to end up kind of circling back and causing problems to humanity on down the line, on down that chain. Um, but also in that, I think we're looking at a limitation of, uh, of technology, right? Um, if our approach, the problem with DDT is that it does have that bad side effect, that it does have bad effects on the bird population. Um, but there are other methods that are coming out or have been produced or are very promising CRISPR technology specifically for mosquitoes. The idea that there are certain breeds of mosquitoes that with the right kind of, um, as I understand it, with the right CRISPR injection into their DNA, we can render them infertile in two generations, which is like three years basically wiping out masses of mosquito population. Um, really promising technology like that, but it's a, a technological limitation. The goal was right to reduce human suffering. Um, it was preemptively dropped because human suffering was discounted in other places, which I think is the problem. Um, but ultimately, it's a failing of technology. We needed a better solution, one that has a less ecological impact, um, but then could still solve that problem of malaria. And I believe that is your goal. I believe you there. I don't believe that is the goal of the climate movement overall. Now, of course, they'll say that. Let me let me change that from climate movement to the environmental movement overall. And I, th I think this is fundamentally a worldview issue from a biblical worldview, how we view our relationship with the environment, and from a um, secular worldview, how they would view their um, relationship with the environment. Um, I think a, a relevant quote here to bring in just from the big picture perspective. I come from a biblical perspective. So, so I believe that the earth was compute, was created for humans and we, the earth was created to be exploited. And let me, um, define what I mean by yeah. exploited. Okay. Ex exploitation is anytime in ecology, anytime one organism or party benefits from the loss of another so exploitation is what you're doing drinking coffee right now because you are exploiting that coffee plant for yourself mm -hmm. and and i say that is 100 percent appropriate that is by design the resources of the planet were designed for humans to use uh that I'll avoid exploitation because it has an ecological yeah. term, which I'm using it in the ecological sense. It's, it's um, intended for our use. Now, I think a, a big shift occurs and is occurring in the environmental movement. And to highlight this, I'll, I'll quote Lynn White Jr. He was in the Department of History at UCLA, and he wrote a book called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. 
Um, here's what he has to say. Especially in its Western form, Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion the world has ever seen. That's a really important idea. Christianity is man-centered, human-centered in that sense. So uh, we think everything, uh, the humans are the most important thing. Nature is secondary. He goes on to say, Christianity, in absolute contrast to ancient, ancient paganism and Asia's religions, not only established a dualism of man and nature, but also insisted that it is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. Uh, and don't let that word scare you. That is an appropriate claim. Yes, we believe that God created the world for our use. Um, to a quote, to a Christian, a tree can be no more than a physical fact. The whole concept of a sacred grove is alien to Christianity and to the ethos of the West. For nearly two millennia, Christian missionaries have been chopping down sacred groves, which are idolatrous because they assume spirit in nature. And here, here's a good sum. Quote, what we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the man-nature relationship. More science and more technology are not going to get us out of the present ecologic crisis until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. Can I um, just kind of question that, that the earth was made for us from a Christian perspective? So I, I can make sense out of, well, the earth is for us to use... Um, but like fundamentally, is it the Christian perspective that it, that it was made for us? And I know from the Christian perspective, we're to have dominion over it and we're to benevolently be overseers and kind of like rule in God's stead on earth, so to speak. But that's a little different than just saying at the, the fundamental level, this is for us rather than I would think maybe... Could it be for God and we're just a part of it? The highest, you know, made in his image, but not so much like the earth is consumable for our purpose, you know? So, yeah, I, I think there's a... So, would God then have received any value out of creating a creation without humans, do you think? I think if he chose to, he could. If he, if he does what he does for his glory, like a display of who he is to delight in himself, then he could, but he, um, he didn't, you know, he received, we're a part of his creation. You know? and, and so I think just by nature of that, the fact that we are here, uh, and, and the fact that he tells us so that for instance, uh, Isaiah 45 for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I mean, the earth was created to be the home for humans. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Now, okay. we would be foolish to trash that home. Okay, so, right. And... um so yeah, I think I think in that note, because um, that is one thing, especially if, if listeners aren't used to the idea of exploitation not being um, not being the ecological sense, but maybe more of like uh, you know the exploitation of the workers or something where it's like um, 
we're going to exploit the workers, which means we're going to treat them as horribly as possible in order to derive out the most capital out of them as possible. They're used to that idea, like the idea of exploitation of the environment might be, um, might feel really crass. Um, but that's clearly not what we're advocating for, right? Not your position. Um, but then that, I think that there's the underlying assumption and maybe almost like a, maybe like an, almost like a no true Scotsman issue here is where, um, we would say that the earth is for the exploitation of humanity, right? Like God has clearly designed the earth in such a way that humanity can live in it and prosper as we have. Um, and at the end of the day, um, providence is everything that got, uh, everything that has happened is evidence of providence. And the fact that humanity has flourished is evidence of his providence and allowing here for humans to flourish. Um, the issue that I would see though, is like in this idea of you don't trash what you, you don't trash your home, right? Um, if God has given dominion for humanity over the earth, um, any good King who has dominion, isn't going to trash his own prairies, isn't going to destroy his own land. Um, and so the idea of wanting to make sure that, um, the earth is properly exploited, um, is going to be one of really careful and diligent ecological measures. Um, and in many ways, I would almost wonder if that propels issues of climate change even higher in the minds of the Christians. Um, because not only do we have, um, kind of a, the secular naturalist call to say, if we don't address things, there's going to be higher levels of human suffering. If we don't address things, there's going to be kind of different levels of uh, extinction of different animals and subtypes. And even um, we could see um, cultural like eradications as different cultures have to shift and move and things like that. Um, we could see a lot of those things. And we would have all those natural consequences. But as Christians, man, is it even worse for us? Because now we don't just have the problem of, yeah, we could heat ourselves out of going, you know, and living in Florida, we have the consequence of we heated ourselves out of living in Florida. And now we have the judgment of a divine being who gave us Florida in order for us to prosper. And now we've like basically flooded that entire state. Um, I should probably choose a better state to flood next time. People might not be as sensitive whenever I talk about flooding Florida. Um, but now we've got that whole extra element of God gave us different areas for exploitation. And part of that exploitation is as a gardener to cultivate. Um, the reason why we can enjoy coffee is because we cultivated it so that we can continue to enjoy, uh, enjoy coffee. We over-exploit that. Then we see the elimination of coffee and there's no more kind of uh, engagement with God's creation in that sense. The coffee disappears. Um, now that to a higher scale of even more significant things, the amount of uh, organisms that could disband, um, that could extinct, uh, expire just because we haven't taken care of the environment. Now it's not just an environmental issue. It's also like a divine issue. So I feel like for a Christian, do you feel like that should propel us even further toward taking things like this, not just at a material seriousness, right? But at almost like a divine consequence, uh, uh, position. So, I don't see it as a moral issue. Okay. If that's if that's where you're going with that. You mean caring for the environment, Earth? Correct. I see it as a, a purely um, logical issue. We should care for it because it is the best thing to do for our human existence. Well, would it not just... So I would argue, question not just that as a moral, but almost a divine issue, right? 
Because if, uh, if humanity is in God's design, right? And I, I imagine you would say that humanity is like the height of creation, right? Made just a little lower than the angels, put above creation, right? Um, and God obviously thinks high of us. Uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? Like these are basic concepts of Christianity. Um, he, en- he enjoys cre- uh, humans enough to, to die for us. So there's clearly some value. Um, but with that, we know that like, okay, well, then the call for making sure that humanity has a good home, a uh, prosperous place to live, um, to reduce that human suffering. I feel like not only would we have to have that be a moral position, but almost like a theological um, level of significance to that. Um, and so like ecological problems would come into that as well. Um, would you agree with that or would you say like, no, it's more utilitarian? So I agree with your, your premise that um, we should try to reduce human suffering. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay. But could you point to, from a scriptural perspective, where the environment is viewed as, in uh, our care for the environment directly, is viewed as a moral or a theological uh, command? Yeah. Um, one to nature, I don't think I could um, to say, like, other than um, other than the original calls in, in Genesis, um, which um, I'm an older theorist, so a lot of that I view um, to be mythological, which actually in my position would elevate it, right? Whenever, uh, whenever God calls for Adam to, um, to have dominion, to increase and multiply, to spread out across the earth, um, it's not just a, a call from one person, uh, from God to one individual, um, for Adam to be fruitful and multiply, but rather a mythological call for all humanity. The idea that uh, Adam is depicted as a gardener is to show like the idea of cultivation and to be able to produce um, across the globe and uh, be flourishing across the globe. Um, I could point to those. Those are all weak arguments because it's dependent on a lot of mythological interpretation already. Um, I think the strongest argument that I could give you would probably be um, the evidence of the talents, right? Uh, the parable of the talents. Um, Christ has this parable where it's three people are given talents, um, a certain amount of uh, a gold, basically, you can think of it. Um, and there's one person who's given, uh, let's, I forget the exact amount, let's say 10, 10 of these pieces of gold. The master goes away. He works really hard. He doubles it. Um, the master is pleased with him. The second person, he's given four, a lot less. He doubles that, gives it back to the master. Master's happy. The last one buries those talents. Master comes back and he's um, he's displeased. And uh, depending on the interpretation of the parable, gets sent to hell, um, which is uh, a pretty pretty intense displeasal. Um, for me, I would say that I think that that could be understood for our environment, our, our impact with environment. Right? If it is true that God has given the world to us for our expo- uh, for its exploitation. Um, then that is a lot of talents that God has given us, a lot of raw resource that God has given us. If so, then if the two servants that were pleasing to God had to double the value of the master's investment in order for him to be pleased, I would think that we would at the very least need to make sure that we didn't like tank that investment, right? Um, and I would see like global warming as um, global warming, mass pollution, 
and, and many other ecological issues, right? From uh, from dumping to um, like uh, runoff with um, uh, like pesticides and, and things like that that ruin groundwater to um, to just like bad disposal of trash, right? Like all these things are all ways in which we would say like not only are we not improving the investment that God has given us, improving the earth that God gave us, but man, we're actually like destroying his investment. Uh, so you're coming from a real practical viewpoint and in line with what you're saying as far as exploiting the earth. But I'm still kind of like unsettled on the whole thing that the earth's just for us. Like uh, some people think of Genesis 1 as a temple narrative, like God creating this. And then he seventh day he comes in, he takes up his rule. And like in a temple, you would have an idol. Well, we're, you know, we're the one made in God's image and so forth. And like if the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, couldn't you say the same for the oceans and so forth? So we're to care for these things that they might display God's glory. So isn't it more than just this is all just here for our use? Not that we don't use it, but it's here for God's glory and for us to take care of in that way. Um, can you, again, asked, I asked Alex, can you point to a scriptural basis for that? Well, if I mean, Genesis 1 is like uh, a temple narrative. So that's an assumption. Right, but it could be assumption based on something, based on just familiarity with I mean, literature at the time. But, I mean, to the point of, like, if I had to point to another passage of Scripture, something that kind of comes to mind would be um, whenever Christ says, you know, if it if it was necessary, the very rocks themselves would cry out in glory, right? Now, I think in the context, it's kind of a rebuke of humanity to say, like, but maybe it's precedent for this position. Um, the thing that Christ is saying there is um, God isn't... God isn't dependent on humans for worshiping him, right? Um, it's not the um, uh, it's not the pagan idea that the gods require human engagement or uh, uh, man, everything in my mind always comes back to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, <laughs> anybody playing Alex Ditto Bingo at home, you can mark off your center square now because um, I'm going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Um, in that system, the divine system is basically like the gods require humans to be clerics to worship them. And the more clerics you have, the more powerful of God you are. And the more powerful of God you are, the more clerics you have. Um, Christianity doesn't operate in that way, right? It, do, it doesn't matter if we worship God or not. He remains ever powerful. Um, and Christ says, you know, even if you didn't worship, uh, if, even if you didn't worship, the very rocks themselves would cry out. Now, I don't think that he's saying that literally as though the rocks would start to uh, start to sing praise songs, but rather acknowledging this idea that just existence itself uh, in almost a self-evident way, in Romans 1, in a self-evident way, speaks to the glory of God. So we could say, like, I think there is a sense in which we would say these things are human-independent, um, glorifying God um, in a way that I think might, might justify your position, but as far as, like... So, so I don't yeah. disagree with any of that um, in, in the sense that creation points to God's glory, mm -hmm. for sure. In fact, you can point to dozens and dozens of passages where God, in order to highlight his glory, points first to creation. Mm -hmm. It was in the passage that I just yep. mentioned in Isaiah, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, that, that's his go-to mm -hmm. to show how powerful and glorifying he is. That It does not follow then 
that we have a, a moral uh, duty then to preserve every one of the 10 million species that are on the planet. And that's, that's the conclusion I hear you making. And that doesn't follow from the scripture. If, if God intended that, I believe he would have stated it more explicitly in scripture. And I do want to circle back to two things that I just don't want to leave on the floor. Um, first of all, I don't take Genesis 1 mythologically. Yeah. And I don't think that's a, personally, I don't think that's a consistent interpretation of scripture. I think that's probably a, another discussion for another time. Um, and I, I wanted to ask directly, do you believe that the, how you interpreted the parable of the talents, mm -hmm. do you think that Christ had in mind environmental issues, or is that a devotional application that you personally are drawing from that? Um, so that would be the difficulty of a parable, right? Like the a parable itself is always meant to be um, both kind of specific and androgynous in a way. Like um, it had a very specific application, which is um, I think in the moment it was probably spent to the idea of kind of human flourishing. Again, just to those people during that time, it would be to um, the praise and glory of God, to being good citizens in that period of time. Um, but it's going to be kind of cross, uh, it's going to have different uh, applications of moving through time to different people, right? Um, to a farmer, it's going to have the application of being a diligent farmer. To me, it's going to have the application of working hard at work and software development, making sure that I'm doing that well. Um, but as we move into a period of time uh, where we have the ability to impact our environment, right? During the first century, it doesn't, uh, the first century Bible isn't going to speak to um, how do we impact at a high level the global climate because they didn't have that impact. It wasn't something that was achievable. So it wouldn't have been on their kind of existential radar to even consider it. And so the best that we would have are kind of these inferences open-handed interpretations so um i mean you talk about that like it's the best we have um, i i think god gave that parable jesus gave that parable for very specific reasons that are universally applied uh, and i think jesus is a million times more interested in the kingdom of heaven than the kingdom of earth and i don't think that parable deals at all with the kingdom of earth um so the difficulty there would be the hard line distinction between the two, right? Um, so, um, yeah, I, I would say there's, there's clearly ways in which the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of earth. But I would also question why we would draw a hard line distinction to say um, that that parable would only be about the kingdom of, of heaven and not pertain to... Because, because the vast majority of Jesus' parables are start out with the kingdom of heaven is likened unto. So you're so. saying that um, because Jesus' mission and what he talked about and what he emphasized was like the winning of souls, so to speak, that that's probably what he was wanting to make a point of with that parable as well. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, kind of makes sense but um yeah um the difficulty that i would have there would be to say like um the 
again, kind of the juxtaposing as though, uh, as though both kingdoms are so independent that one doesn't have an impact on the other or that, that the application couldn't be pulled from one to the other. Um, what it strikes me as like, um, uh, Niebuhr, um, he wrote the, the book called, uh, Christ and Culture. Um, Niebuhr had six or seven different approaches with how humanity and Christianity, um, or Christianity and culture are supposed to engage. At certain times there is a isolationist. There's times where Christians are just supposed to remove ourselves from culture, um, because whatever it is in that culture is, uh, a really good joke, uh, Sorry, uh, whatever it is in that culture is um, is so inherently um, opposed to the nature of Christ that you just can't engage with it. Um, but in other areas, like there is the paradox of Christian uh, Christ and culture, where Christ is actually using culture itself as a means of bringing about the new kingdom, um, and that our engagement in it is is quintessential. Right, Paul using his citizenship uh, in the Roman Empire. Um, as a means of protecting himself in order to preach the gospel. It's a way in which he's engaging in culture in order to kind of keep those two kingdoms kind of connected. Um, and I think that that is ways that we see these kind of two kingdoms bleed into one another and be, at times, um, opposed to one another. Let's, let's go ahead and kind of turn a corner. So we're, there's some philosophical differences in just what our responsibility is to the earth. But we both basically feel like we have a responsibility to care for the resources, the earth, and so forth. So let's maybe turn toward, um, well, what should we be pursuing? Um, what our attitude should be toward caring for the earth? Um, so, so anyway, we're close enough to no, we should be doing something, I think, right? Um, so just what um, what should that be? Um, do you want to give your start with that? Um, does that seem like a good uh, turn to make? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just to, like, to pull it, uh, maybe in the two different perspectives so that anybody um, kind of holding our, our ideas uh, might be able to pull out, like, um, and make sure that I understand your position well so that I can understand where you're coming from. Um, my position would be basically that um, the call for Christianity and kind of <clears throat> the call of Christ is going to also be entailed, not necessarily solely, but entailed in also ecological calls. Same way that I would also say, like, there are certain social calls that Christ makes um, that are required for us as Christians to kind of uphold. Um, and so kind of ecological advances are going to be kind of parse and parcel of that. Uh, your position is going to be if I understand correctly, um, is that um, ecological advances and ways to deal with climate is going to be more utilitarian, using using the earth as a resource and kind of how do we get the most out of it. Um, is that correct? I like the way you put that. Okay, cool. Uh, it's good. I always want to make sure in my mind that like I'm actually you know tracking and getting getting what you can. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so whether more utilitarian or or something a little more uh, prof- profound source responsibility. Almost, and- yeah. Um, to, to, to just make all of my uh, philosophy professors um, hate me for a moment. Um, yeah, the kind of utilitarian approach almost versus like a, um, my position as like a virtue ethicist position is the idea of like 
um, something isn't borne out as good or bad in the actions or consequence, but rather in the very character of the person who's performing it. Hmm. It's the reason why, like, um, yeah, it's the reason why I think that we see um, it comes down to, like, motive and motivation and character of the actor is usually going to determine whether or not that action was morally right. Um, Now, is that philosophy speaking or is that Bible speaking? That's, um, so it's, it's born out in philosophy, but it has certain uh, biblical kind of interpretations. Like, um, so the big question from a biblical standpoint, oh man, my wife is going to hate that I'm pulling this in because I do this every day, um, would be the question of like, does God command uh, kind of arbitrary external to his nature? That is to say, like, God has a certain list of commandments that he made kind of arbitrarily. Um, the Ten Commandments is just things that he decided one day, yes, this would be good for humanity, but it's completely removed from me. Or are those kind of commands born out of his very nature, right? Um, the one that I would point to is the commandment that says, you know, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not lie can be an arbitrary commandment. God could just say, you don't get to lie, but I get to, and it's not actually morally bad. I've just decided that it is, so now it is, because it was an arbitrary decision. Um, that's one position. It's not my position. Uh, my position is rather what we see in other passages of Scripture, I, the Lord, cannot lie, um, is to say, like, by his very nature, his, his essence is one that is averse to deception. Um, and so the laws that he has for humanity through his communicate gifts, those, the fact that we're made in his image, um, is basically those laws are intrinsic to his nature uh, and it's kind of born out in that. And so then the um, the different things that we see through that communicative gift that God has, the fact that we're made in his image, is what comes into a lot of these issues, which is where like the fact that God loves the earth and God is glorified by the earth and has a, a love for the physicality, the material of the earth, um, communicates to us to also have that kind of same love for the earth where appropriate where under underneath our love for obviously god first human second yeah i don't find that and i don't i don't mean to prolong this because we do need to get on to that that question you've talked i don't find that love for the earth that you're communicating um outlined in the bible from god okay so i'd be interested to hear though like the verses that you but you've already highlighted the main ones yeah okay um in Jonah, he cared for the cows. Remember at the end? <laughs> Do you guys know what I'm ta- referring yeah. to? Yeah, the, the cows in Jonah or um, in the New Testament, you know, uh, a bird doesn't fall from the heavens without God's knowledge. Um, and you, know. you could all add to that, blessed is the man that regarded the life of his beast. Yeah. Hey, there we go. Uh, yeah. So, so, so there, there, there certainly are. Yeah. is precedence for us to, again, be wise stewards yeah. of the earth. Um, but I don't see that the pattern in Scripture that... That God has like some intrinsic love for the earth outside of its connection to mankind. Um, I, yeah, it would be a difficult, it would be a difficult question to answer. I don't know if you would be able to answer it from Scripture, right? Like, uh, and this might be into the the point of inerrancy and maybe uh, biblical simplicity, right? So, um, the Bible is meant to be interpreted in a very particular way. Um, and I think what the Bible is, is really answering fundamentally is one of soteriology. It's the, the biggest question. It's the question that started in the very beginning with Genesis. Uh, humanity, um, by, its, um, by its consequence, is a fallen creature. 
it needs salvation. The Proto-Evangelica comes out in the first passages of Scripture. Uh, and then everything from there forward is really this narrative of how does one atone with, uh, atone with God? Um, and how does humanity find its way um, back into good graces, into a moral place with God? And then it ends at the conclusion of us having achieved that though by fire and though only for some, right? Um, and so it's, the Bible is basically one of soteriology. It's not going to answer a lot of those questions of how does humanity behave ecologically because it's not going to be the focus of it, right? Um, so I almost like uh, I wouldn't ex- necessarily have that high demand to say I need this expectation met. More of like the, the little influences, the little occurrences here or there. I feel like would be sufficient enough uh, sufficient enough for me. I wouldn't hold that higher level of burden because I don't, I don't think that that's what Scripture is looking to do. Um, though I think that there are small points, right? In the same way that um, social issues like um, uh, caring, for, caring for your neighbor um, are things that we see through Scripture. Um, Public housing is one incurrence of that. Um, getting homeless care so homeless people can be off the streets. Um, and doing free housing initiatives are all great social ways of hitting that expectation of caring for your for your neighbor. But the Bible isn't going to lay out like here's this social program of free public housing or something like that. Like, so that so would be an undue burden to put on. Scripture. It actually does, but we're, again, we're getting off track. Yeah. And, and that social program is called the church not the government. Uh, so I don't want to go down yeah. this road because we're already uh, kind of getting yeah. off topic. But no, I, I absolutely agree with our, our church's responsibility for those needs. What I see a lot of us, a lot of modern Christians doing is outsourcing the church's responsibility to government. Um, and I'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, see, I would also hold the, the same problem with the, the scripture, right? Scripture is meant for a sociology. The church is meant for, um, well, and if I have to question this, like maybe push on that a little bit, if you have a hard line division between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, right, then wouldn't we have to, by its very nature, say, well, then these aren't the expectations of the church, right? The expectation of the church is for the kingdom of God. So a lot of these things like social programs, like housing, um, like uh, different ecological problems should be exported or not rather aren't under the uh, uh, dominion of the church, right? The dominion of the church is for the proclamation of the gospel. Almost anything outside of that, I would say like the church is doing stuff that it's not really meant to do. Um, proclaiming the gospel, caring for its, uh, caring for its pastor, uh, caring for its congregation. Um, but yeah, wouldn't that kind of be opposed to one another? So, hmm. No, because uh, the Bible is, and the church is all about the human and in order to reach the soul. Mm-hmm. So to the extent, I, I think it would be ridiculous for churches to be involved in um, animal rights stuff. Uh, there's no human soul involved in that. Mm-hmm. But, it, but churches historically, and rightfully so, are the organizations that have started hospitals and started um, uh, shelters for the homeless because of that that desire to reach the soul, um, and we must never lose that that big picture perspective of the kingdom of heaven. 
Yeah, which is, I mean, those are all uh, situations where the church is kind of doing that outworking. Um, but it doesn't seem as though like that's a central call for the church, right? The central call for the church is a proclamation of the gospel. Agreed. Um, but it then would be like kind of an extensions out of that. Um, yeah, um, an interesting concept. Um, uh, but uh, I, I can I can tell that if I continue to gish gallop and pull us back into this, uh, Will will throw a throw a pastry at me. Right. So speaking of climate yeah. change, let's yes. tie back sure. into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the question is like, what should we be doing? Um, so more than our philosophical uh, thoughts about our responsibility for the the earth and so forth. Just what what, what can we be doing? Yeah. What should we be doing that could be helpful do you want to do you have so, a sort of thing yeah these are this is a tough question to answer mm-hmm. um at the individual level we need to again have that um big picture perspective that the uh, man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth as christ put it in other words um we as christians have become just as materialistic as the world in just wanting stuff all that stuff eventually comes from the environment one way or another. And so in that sense, we are over-exploiting our environment as a society, as Christians. Um, and, and we, quite frankly, need to be more minimalistic in our lifestyles. We need to be more um, simplistic in our lifestyles and less exploitative of the, of the environment. Because we have to be thinking a thousand years in, in the future here. And right now, um, I, I think Christians sometimes are short-sighted because they're, they're always expecting, rightfully so, that Jesus' return is right around the corner. But it's possible we have another thousand years on this planet. And we have to be, um, you know, we have to be smart about planning for that thousand years of future. So that well, can... Oh, sorry, if I can just interject on that. Um, I think that's brilliant because I think that uh, especially, and I, I see it much more among um, conservatives, uh, conservative Christians. So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna point out how good your perspective is on that. Usually, the conversation I have with a lot of conservative Christians, especially depending on their view of Revelation, it's the idea of like, well, it's all gonna be burned away anyway, right? Like, so what does it matter if I recycled? God is gonna burn and remake it anyway, which I would say is like. Um, uh, my position would be like, wow, what a flippant way um, to, to view the graces of God. That Agreed. Um, in the same way that we would say, like, uh, you know, I don't sin uh, so that grace may aboundeth. I also don't pollute so that, uh, you know, the re-restoration can aboundeth. Like, that's, that's uh, if not insane, certainly perverse in the way it hits. Um, so it is nice to see, like, from your perspective, like, we need to be thinking, you know, as climate chi- scientists are looking at the end of the century, you're looking at the end of millennia saying like okay we need to make smart decisions that will not just make us prosperous for 50 or 60 years but for a thousand years um so long as great uh so long as christ tarries we need to be concerned with that uh, i think that's a great perspective sorry i cut you off will okay um, so my thought was that's gr- that's a great thing for us to keep in mind individually and do the best we can with it but the thing is that we live in a capitalist society and capitalism as far as i my, uh, you know, it's probably the best system, you know, and that's just my opinion for it's, us. It's no good. And, we got to get rid of that. And yet system. it's not perfect. 
And it's the whole idea of it is to create needs and wants and so forth. So even though we got this um, personal, can have this personal philosophy to be minimalistic, we got this world trying to, you know, it's a stream, a river going the other way. So I don't think that um, it's like a a tenable type of answer. Um, It, um, though it's great and it's good to, to try to incorporate that and fight against the world, it just doesn't seem like it's going to, it's not an optimistic type of answer, I think. So, agreed. That's part one. Mm-hmm. Part one is on the individual side. Right. We have to practice what we preach. Mm-hmm. So we cannot, on the one hand, being saying um, uh, corporations need to reduce their their uh, carbon emissions, and on the other hand, say, well, but we can live any way we want to. I mean, we have to practice what we preach. So that's on the individual side. On the big picture side, um, this is where... There, there, there is going to be this this give and take, this push and pull, because unfettered uh, capitalism is driven by by greed, is what it is. Right. And, and greed will always take a short-term gain over a long-term loss, and that's what over-exploitation has done to our, our Earth, especially during the 1800s and 1900s, and we see it continuing today. Um, and so there, there is a point to step in and say... What do we want our United States to look like and focus on implementing those goals for, for our country? Um, and we have done that. So, so we have our carbon emissions are, are lower today than they were last year. They are lower today than they were 10 years ago. Um, our, the era of over-exploitation, which was when our forests were almost completely harvested, uh, many animals were were going extinct. White-tailed deer almost extinct in Missouri, and now they harvest two hundred forty thousand plus annually just to keep them under control. Black bears almost extinct. Now there's a hunting season for black bears because they they have been managed properly. Uh, Canada Canada geese almost extinct, and now there you are can't too many. Not hit one with a car on the way here. Um, yeah. I get chased so down by them every day at work. We have seen this success over and over again where we recognize uh, where things are heading and we say okay let's put the brakes on here and adjust how we're doing that and we're seeing this correction occurring as we speak Hmm. um and so so this idea like the world is ending the world is ending no we're seeing the correction as we speak fossil fuels which i prefer to call hydrocarbon based fuels because that's just a more accurate (laughs) term of what they are coal and oil they saved our planet in one sense they were our trees were our main fuel source and we were deforesting the entire planet and then along came fossil fuels during an era when population growth was incredible and we needed energy and they have nursed us through this this explosion of population that's starting to level out and the technology is coming around where we can't rely on those forever for a thousand years and we're moving towards renewables, which is fantastic. Yeah. And this should continue. And it will continue. Um, and yeah. it should not be mandated. And this is where maybe we would part ways. It should not be mandated. We have to let things go there naturally. Okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think you were right. And I, I think that there's an interesting um, 
an interesting kind of evolution that humanity has taken um, with its relation to energy, right? You're right to say, um, you know, originally we were, um, humanity was led by just being able to be close enough to a forest in order to heat yourself during the winter. Um, and you were dependent on that very, like, large mass of wood keeping you safe through the winter, um, which was taxing to uh, taxing to produce. It was hard to store. It was not not very efficient for humanity. Then we found, oh man, there's um, you know there's other methods. There's there's these whales that swim around the ocean that have bellies full of oil that we can burn year round, um, and you can package a little bit of it, have the light that you need, um, and that was really great. And we were able to use that for a period until we found out like, oh, this is killing all the whales. But it's cool because we have this black rock or this sludge underneath the earth that hey, we can with a little bit of work, burn that too. And what do you know? We can have that same kind of energy, better energy. Um, and those things, like, we can we can go back and look at those periods and say, like, oh, man, they should have never done that. No, absolutely, they should have done that. Like, we needed those periods um, because there are certain, like, um, there are certain filters that humanity kind of has to cross, certain hurdles that we need to, um, need to get above in order to continue to produce, right, uh, in order to move forward as and kind of evolve as a society. Um, it used to be trees. Now it's um, now it's fossil fuels because I, I don't remember what you called it just a moment ago. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's those more polluting methods. But we have seen a rise in um, kind of four or five different energy types, um, things that we've known about for a long time that are now actually becoming more efficient, solar power, wind power, things like that. Um, newer technologies like wave power, which is um, boggling to my mind how that works. It's amazing that they they have these generators and buoys out in the ocean that are producing energy um, off of naturally occurring wave patterns um, to nuclear energy, which um, is dangerous, if, especially when you're running Soviet style, um, Soviet era um, technology. Today's technology is a lot better. We're producing more, more cleanly. Um, a lot of those uh, uh, less emitting and really that's what I think we should be looking at is what is having less emission, not necessarily zero emission, but less emission. Like sometimes, um, those are going to be, those are going to be better for us. Um, sometimes it's about like stemming the problem, um, and doing less bad each day. Right. Um, rather than improving. If, uh, if I want to make sure that I'm healthy, sometimes it's the process is walking more each day. Sometimes the process is just not being lazy, right? Um, making sure that you do less harm here and more good here. Um, but I do think, uh, I think whenever we look at this, there is some levels of, um, if we're going to have kind of the free market approach, right? Um, to say, uh, and maybe this is where we can pull out the line because I think we're all in agreement, like green energy is good, right? Um, man, we got this big furnace in the sky. I would call energy. it renewable energy. Renewable Again, energy. to remove those those buzzwords yeah. renewable is what we mean okay yeah something that doesn't run out yes um prolific um something that's not gonna have a, a time span to it and something that hopefully has less um less impact whenever it does so right uh less negative consequences um if we have the free market solution which i think is good to a certain sense i think the limitation of the free market is kind of like um what plato viewed as the limitation of democracy right limitation of democracy was that you kind of need everybody in that democracy to be well educated to be able to um to be able to engage intellectually with the world around them and honestly for politicians to be honest uh and to be forthcoming about their positions 
Um, with that level of deception, though, it's really difficult for anybody to make a, an educated decision or for a democracy to flourish. I think in similar way, a free market approach to, um, to renewable energy um, can be good, but so often the capitalist incentive is one of um, one of kind of obfuscating to be gentle to like flat up line about um, the impact of your certain industry. Um, and so I think in some senses, like the difficulty of capitalism is that capitalism is very good at doing what it does, which is producing capital. Um, very, very proficient at that, but it doesn't really care about anything else. Um, modern day kind of stakeholder capitalism, um, is doing a little bit better because it's, it's looking for more impacts, um, more things that are important to people. And we start to see that in the, um, the advertising where people like Starbucks that says, you know, 80 or 90% of our stuff is now um, zero emissions or, you know, we're doing these things. And they advertise that, which is great, but oftentimes those are obscured or kind of marketing. I think without a sense of enforcement about, at the very least, honesty of your company um, to be forthcoming on that um, is going to be, it's going to be hard uh, or impossible. Um, but then the other part of that is the markets aren't free, right? They're, they're always going to have incentives. We're always going to have um, governments kind of putting their hands on scales to encourage uh, industry in one way or another. Um, and in some ways you need that because one of the limitations of capitalism is oftentimes the worst thing is going to be the most immediately profitable. And at the end of the day, all you need is a quarter, right? All you need is one bad quarter for your business not to survive or one really good quarter for you to become the monopolized interest. Um, and if we don't have things that regulate, that restrict that market, that restrict what a company can do, um, then we will have these situations where one company spikes up, they uh, they become the ultra-powerful, and then without us coming back and saying, no, you're producing energy in a way that is really bad, or you're polluting in a way that's really bad, or you're you're having these negative consequences on society. I don't think that there's a way that we can ever mandate, or there's a way that we can ever, through natural capitalist interests, keep that from happening. And I, and, and I don't disagree with that. I think that's, you know, what I was going at with, there's, there is a, a give and take, a push and pull. There is, there is a line that we have to decide on as a society of, of uh, wh- where do we draw that line on how much we're going to exploit um, yep. the environment. And my concern is that right now there's really only one voice at the table uh, in the climate change discussion, especially in, in high-level policy. And, it, and it's this voice that says, if we don't do something now, world as we end it will, or the world as we know it will end. For instance, yeah. in, uh, let's see, 1972, UN's environmental protection leader, quote, we have 10 years to stop the catastrophe. 1982, um, executive director of the United Nations Environmental Program said if things aren't fixed by the turn of the century, the year 2000, the world would face, quote, an environmental catastrophe which will witness devastation as complete, as irreversible as any nuclear holocaust by year 2000. 1989, um, the UN predicts disaster if global warming not checked. That's the headline from the Associated Press. Um, 2007, Rahanbra 
Pecuri, head of the UN Climate Panel. What we do in the next two to three years will determine our future. If there's no action before 2012, that's too late. 2019, the UN General Assembly, 73rd session. Here's a quote from their United Nations website. The headline says, only 11 years left to prevent irreversible damage from climate change. So my, I'm seeing only one voice out there that's dominating the conversation. And that's dangerous. That's, that's dangerous. In fact, you, it's, to me, it's ridiculous that you go on to YouTube, which I was doing, and I search climate change and I'm you know, seeing, seeing some of the different voices out there. And on YouTube, they feel necessary to put a disclaimer on a video about climate change that says, United Nations defines it as such, climate change refers to long-term shifts in temperature and weather patterns mainly caused by human activities, especially the burning of fossil fuels. On a YouTube video about climate change, there's one voice that's being heard and promoted and pushed, and that is a very dangerous position for society to be in because we're going to be um, blinded to... Uh, the, the hazards of just following that one voice. Yeah. Well, those, those are kind of forward-looking uh, type of predictions. Is there anything that we're experiencing right now that's an effect and adverse, you know, anything we're experiencing adversely that's an effect of climate change? You, do you mean like today? Right, yeah, right today. In Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri? No, I'm meaning just in the world in general, um, like different places, places of that are close to the ocean or anything like that. Well, we see we see changes in the world, and this is stuff we we didn't really talk about. Is the evidence that climate change is happening and that there are bad things that could happen in the future? We see changes in the world. Um, there is evidence of a decrease in the polar ice caps, um, which reflects sunlight. And if those decrease, then the temperature could rise more. Are see, are any weather changes? A result of climate change? So, let me share. This is, this is one of the problems with climate change. Every weather change suddenly becomes a result of climate change. So, for instance, here is um, in Al Gore's famous book, An Inconvenient Truth. Um, he just kind of highlights, lists tons and tons of, of these signs of climate change. And one of them is the change in water level in the Great Lakes. So, here's from 2013 how climate change is damaging the Great Lakes with implications for the environment and the economy. 2013. Great Lakes, Michigan, and Huron set a new record low water level for the month of December, and in the coming weeks they could experience their lowest water levels ever. Um, Quote, the Great Lakes are feeling the effects of climate change. That was 2013. Uh, 2021. Quote, cities along the Great Lakes facing rising water and costs. Climate change could cost municipalities $2 billion in damages through 2025 because the water's rising now. And so the water goes down, they say climate change. The water goes up, they say climate change. And, and that's because there's only one voice that's dominating this narrative. Everything is a result of climate change. You know? And that, that's just, it's dangerous to think that monolithically about any issue right um yeah so um there's definitely a sense and i think this is this is where we have kind of a hidden voice um at the table maybe in in many ways it's going to appear as though the the largest and loudest voices are 
are ones that are proposing climate change. And in some ways, like we have these these very jumeristic, um, jumeristic statements about climate change. And it, it's it's the difficulty of um, it's the difficulty of aversion, right? So like if um, if it's one of those things of okay, if we if we don't do anything, something bad is going to happen, right? we don't do anything, the world is going to, uh, or if we don't do anything, um, we're going to suffer really, really bad negative consequences. And then we do something, and then we don't suffer those consequences. The natural instinct is to say, why do we do anything? And it's it's very hard because the counterpositive can never be provable, right? Um, because we did the good thing. So we, we did make movements that averted um, a crisis. If that crisis averted, you don't have any evidence that a crisis would have existed. Um, so there's some issues in that, but I, I think this idea that there's only one voice at the table is the voice that's being published. That's true, but that just because there's only one voice at the table doesn't mean that there's only one seat at the table, right? And I think this other seat is occupied by carbon emitters, people who are very, very invested in the current energy models, um, whether or not they are kind of the Exxon Mobiles of the world, the people who are actually producing energy. Um, many of whom are already diversifying their portfolios to make sure that they are ready for more renewable energies because those are becoming more profitable. Um, and at the end of the day, um, a lot of those companies will shift on a dime if it saves them a dollar, right? Um, they're going to be motivated by capital interests. Um, but in the meantime, it's not. And so um, for those companies, and so they'll put pressure at the table to ensure that there isn't these types of changes or that any type of change is uh, is mostly cosmetic, is carbon offsets, is us paying kind of through this weird carbon trading. Um, one organization saying we're carbon neutral, even though they haven't changed anything about their company. It's the uh, the blockchain thing where uh, in 2017, if you just added the word blockchain to your company, it rose in stock value. Um, in many ways, eco-friendly is a blockchain buzzword, right? You can add it to your company, do nothing, um, pretend that you've done something and it's going to have that positive influence, uh, in your company's stock, a negative influence everywhere else because nothing has changed. Um, but I think that that is a seat at the table that in many ways it mimics because that is what people want. People want, it seems like the market really wants, um, green, uh, the market really wants renewable energies. They want, uh, the average consumer wants to know that what they're doing, their consumption is at least mildly ethical um, to majorly ethical, right? Um, whenever it comes out that Hershey's uh, chocolate is participating in child slavery, uh, people don't want to eat Hershey's chocolate. But they do. They just don't want the child slavery. Um, whenever other organizations, that's why we look for organizations that in many ways mimic our social values, Um the reason why, like, if I jump on um, uh, Ben Shapiro's network, I'm going to see um, advertisements for the razor company that he produced because conservatives want a razor company that isn't, um, that is more conservative, that mimics their values. Um, a lot of people have the value of ecological change, so companies are going to make it look like they're doing that. But I don't think that a lot of them are, right? Like, a lot of these are going to be kind of saying that we're making these changes but not really um and so those are those might be more quiet voices at the table but they're more impactful right like the things that the energy producers exxon Mobil's, for the sake of carbon emissions is going to be way more impactful um and what they actually do than necessarily what like a climate scientist at the un is going to say right 
So it might be that these voices are loud, but I feel like there is kind of these quiet seats at the table that are actually going to be a lot more impactful. Does that make sense? Am I, sure. Am I articulating that well? Okay. Well, and I think that's that's why it's those quiet voices at the table that, that have prevented us from just going all out as far as the left would want us to go as a nation mm-hmm. in regulating carbon emissions and promoting renewable energies and funding them. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that those... those uh, balances are are acting and i want them to stay there that's the idea although I, I when i say i want them to stay there i am not for a crony capitalism like there there was a lot of um questionable appointees in the bush administration that had ties to energy companies mm-hmm. that were also making environmental policies yeah. that, that's conflict of interest no brainer there that should yeah. be avoided one of the the last job that I had was for a, an elevator inspection company, and that was phenomenal to me. Just like uh, <clears throat> looking in that, like the inspection company and the maintenance company cannot be the same company, right? Because then you have elevators falling out of uh, falling out of shafts um, because the maintenance company goes, "Yeah, it looks good. Um, my here's my bill. It looks good. I'm out of here." Um, like you need those type of uh, of checks and balances. Um, it's something that is. Um, in more liberal institutions, like in uh, more liberal educations, more lefty uh, educations, it's a shame that conservatives have kind of dropped out of higher education in a lot of way. Um, whether it's because they've kind of overemphasized other career paths or whether it's because they just don't feel comfortable in lefty uh, education spaces, it's a shame because a lot of those conservatives would be good to have in classrooms, having those back and forth, having those conversations. For things like this, I do think it would be good to have those conversations back and forth the difficulty, though, is that I think in a lot of this, like, the silent the silent seats are the ones with the most power um, and kind of mimic the ones on the, on the left um, without ever actually kind of capitulating to any of those, um, those higher efforts. There are things that I would say, like, yeah, there are certain excesses, certain bad approaches um, that the lefty community would, would approach, would want. Um, but if we're operating by those first principles those who should be self-resolved, right? Um, if we find that this approach to climate change is too aggressive and it's producing more human suffering, then the hope would be that we would fix on that, on those first principles. Um, but I would also say, like, I think that the issue there is that those strongest voices, the, the strongest chairs at the table are going to be those ones who don't really have a vested interest, which is where we need to, like, push and to have those regulations to say like you don't have a vested interest in your neighbor but we're going to ensure that you do through this regulatory process so those discussions should be had and i'm open for having those discussions because uh i don't think anyone here well i'm sure they're out there yeah i'm not advocating for just like a a laissez-faire completely free yeah no regulations um no you know uh, we have regulations in our city. We have regu- that that we appreciate. We have some that we don't appreciate, but well, we at least have more of a voice in, in fixing those. And I, we I, see the the absence of regulation, like train derailments and things like that, where it's like, oh man, we we've cut so back on train regulations. Now we have them falling over, and you know, um, being huge ecological impacts for a short time, not as great as we thought. Um, but yeah, like those regulations are kind of inherently good if not Ooh, i don't know if i would say inherently good yeah, i would say the concept of regulation is inherently good if not sometimes misappropriate I, I would call them a necessary evil 
Okay. Okay. So <laughs> let's take another turn. Mm-hmm. So f- for wrapping up, um, why don't you each kind of give like a, a summary of, you know, in a nutshell of just kind of how you feel and think about this. And then what you would like anyone listening to um, really hear and take away as far as the attitude they should have and any action they should be taking, if anything. Um, so it sound like a good way to kind of wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Um, okay. Yeah, do you want to take that? Sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll follow you. I'll start off. Right. Um, so yeah, just to reiterate uh, my position, I um, when you look at the evidence, it looks like climate change is occurring. It's hard to deny that. Um, so the question is why, and there are many factors that could be a part of that. But it, I'm sure humans have a role in it. Um, I would encourage everyone to avoid the two extremes, one being the dismissive attitude that says humans have no impact on the environment. The other extreme being the alarmist attitude, which I've highlighted here, that uh, there is doom and gloom in the near future if we if we do nothing. Um, so I a couple resources that I would point out to people if you want to hear kind of another voice on this instead of the, the one voice that we typically hear. Uh, there's Cornwall Alliance, which is a Christian-based group that kind of pushes back on some of the climate policy. Jordan Peterson, he is a vocal person out there. Um, he's always has an interesting secular perspective on uh, on these issues, and he's not afraid to take an, a position opposite of mainstream. There's Heartland Institute. Um, they, they put out a publication, Climate Change at a Glance, for teachers and students. It also highlights some of the um, false narratives that you hear, like, more hurricanes that are going to wipe us out. It's actually, there is not a trend in more storms out there. Um, so, so they kind of counter some of that stuff. I would recommend that resource as well. Um, but in closing, I encourage everyone to walk circumspectly, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 5. And by that, I mean, we, we have to move forward. We have to plan that a thousand years in advance, but we need to do so carefully to avoid, on one hand, the danger of irreversibly damaging our planet, which is our home, potentially for the next thousand years. But on the other hand, the danger of yielding too much power to a bunch of faceless bureaucrats in policymaking institutions in government. And we have to avoid both of those extremes. Um, I think either one would lead to unsustainability in the future. It's a really good wrap-up. And those resources you mentioned, they're independent. They're not tied to, like, uh, oil companies. Like, I, I've know, I've come across websites, and then I realize, I you know, do a little research and realize, well, they're backed by ExxonMobil or someone like that. Yes. I mean, just like everything, people, you have to walk circumspectly. So yeah. I'm not 100% sure about Heartland Institute. Okay. Because that's kind of a bigger name one. It wouldn't surprise me if somewhere down on the records – they get a donation sure. from, and that that stuff is hard to tease out sometimes. Right. So use your best discretion. Okay. On, on, on either side, you can't just eat, right. take everything wholesale. Right. Thanks, Joe. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, and I think that's wise. Um, a wise observation to say, though, though it's not necessary, right? Sometimes um, 
sometimes somebody pays the bill. Um, you know, Pharaoh paid Moses' diaper bill, right? Um, and Moses was not pro-Pharaoh, right? Um, sometimes it can happen that an organization can fund you and you spend your time criticizing that organization or a billionaire can fund you and you spend your time criticizing that billionaire. Um, but sometimes money is impactful, right? Um, and so you have to be looking at those different organizations. Um, <clears throat> what I would sum up with my position is basically that um, I think that your, I think your position to say there, there are two extremes, certainly, uh, certainly observable uh, and certainly true. But I would say if, if there's one thing that I'm worried about, it would be um, a culture that is less concerned, not more concerned. Um, that the that the like hysteria, gloom, doomerism is bad because it becomes inactive. But the motivation to do what's right in order to be motivated to do action um, is going to be the most successful. The overweight person who realizes that they're obese and does something about that, uses that to motivate them forward, is going to be the the one in the best situation. Um, so my position would basically be that um, from a Christian perspective, I think that God is, um, has put us in a very prized position uh, to be over creation, but in order to cultivate creation, in order to make sure that we're producing the best out of that resource, um, in order to reduce human suffering, maximize on human flourishing, um, I think that's a call that we, we see kind of intrinsically through scripture and then higher in moral philosophy. Um, I think one of the ways that we have to exercise that out is with something like a climate, uh, climate concerns, climate catastrophes, both proactively doing different measures like um, making sure that your housing is built in right places in order to watch out for flooding and things like that, um, all the way down to initiatives in, uh, in more sustainable, renewable energies. Some of these are going to be at local level. Some of this is going to be the idea of individuals... Um, where they can motivated with their dollars. Hey, it's unfortunate we're in a capitalist system, but that's where we are. So we got to kind of play the game, try to put our money where we can when we have it. But at larger scales, what we are going to have to have is more systemic issue, uh, more systemic res- responsibility. <clears throat> we're going to have to vote for people that are, are wanting to represent our, um, our concerns in climate change. Um, and having that voice at the table through, through our voting policies they, they may be faceless bureaucrats, but I would rather have uh, a faceless bureaucrat assigned by somebody that I voted for than just one kind of assigned by whatever corporate interest company um, built out their field of trustees. Right? At least in this one, I have a little bit of say um, in who that be, is. Um, emphasizing those, voting for, um, voting for politicians that are taking this seriously, who are wise in their approach so that they're not kind of going off the deep end uh, in one direction or the other. Um, but finding really sustainable ways to move us forward so that we can be thinking not 50 years or 100 years or 10 years, uh, the idea of not looking and saying, like, man, in 10 years this might be over, but saying in a 1,000 years where is humanity going to be? Um, answering those questions, I think, is, is going to be something that's going to be what we need in our leaders and our politicians um, and kind of pushing in that, in that direction. So I would say a big actionable is, um, sure, do those changes at your local level. Do what you can personally, but then get out and vote. Push up those um, push up those leaders who have a higher culpability who can do more um, and have more of an impact on the environment. All right. Well, thanks, Alex. I appreciate that. Thanks, Joel. I appreciate you and both of y'all for the preparation you've done and for getting together to, 
to share and engage and so forth. So thank you. Yeah, thank absolutely. You thank you so much for this conversation. It's, it's been great. I, I've really Agreed. enjoyed your perspectives. Mm-hmm.